I don't like your attitude. What else is no? I'm holding you in contempt of court. Oh, there's a fucking surprise. Hey, everyone. This isn't Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. It's me, Rhiannon, and I'm here with a bonus premium episode of 5 to 4. In this episode, we're taking you into the world of public defenders with two guests, Josh and Katie, who work in public defense. And me, obviously. I'm a public defender. Public defenders represent clients who can't afford a lawyer, and it's a tough job. The pay is low, the hours are long, and the caseloads are heavy. But on any given day, your client might be freed from jail, be reunited with their family, you get to tell someone's story, or we get a bullshit charge dropped. This episode is about the highs and lows of being a public defender, and by extension, the highs and lows of our legal system. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court and the prosecution sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have torn through American liberty like cops through a box of break room donuts. Nice. I'm Peter. I'm here with Rhiannon. Hey. And our special friends, Josh and Katie. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. Today is uh, it's a special day. We are having a discussion about what it is like to be a public defender in this country. Uh, Rhiannon, Josh, and Katie are all public defenders. Katie's currently a clinical professor at a law school criminal defense clinic. Josh is a director of trials and training for a public defender's office. I will be playing the role of the common moron. <laughs> yeah, Peter, why are you here? I'm here to moderate. I'm here to moderate and drive the discussion forward because you could not be trusted with it, Rihanna. <laughs> That's the bottom line. That's true. That's true. I agree. So we, you know, we solicited a bunch of questions from our subscribers and we're going to go through a bunch of those and uh, some some questions that I had. But before we do, I would like to give an introduction that I call what is a public defender? Okay. Now, I Googled this and a public defender is a lawyer who works for the government, uh, whether it be federal, state or local, and provides criminal defense services for people who cannot afford an attorney. I made that definition up, but I do think that's pretty much spot on, guys. So you guys jump in if that sounds incorrect. Yeah, I would just say that you can also work for like a nonprofit public defense organization that usually contracts mm-hmm. with a local government to provide indigent criminal defense services for a certain municipality. But yeah, yeah. Nailed it, Peter. Glad we cleared that up. <laughs> Looked like a real asshole until you clarified that. So... Public defense institutions have been around in America since at least the 1920s or so when they sprung up in California, but they really proliferated after the Supreme Court handed down Gideon v. Wainwright, which held that criminal defendants are constitutionally entitled to an attorney, forcing every jurisdiction to hire a bunch of lawyers against their will, against the jurisdiction's will, (laughs) to defend poor people who could not otherwise afford uh, defense. That's right. I'm really, really excited about this episode. I've been thinking about doing a special episode just about public defense for a while. And I wanted to talk about a couple of things up top. So one explanation or one thing I wanted to mention is that people, listeners, I'm sure will have noticed that just like Peter, Michael and I, Josh and Katie are only going by their first names. We haven't shared specific details about where Josh and Katie currently work or have worked or where they went to law school or 
or any of that bullshit. And I just want to explain really quick. I think it's similar to the reasons why Michael, Peter, and I don't share specific details because it's going to allow us to have a more honest and frank conversation. Josh and Katie are absolutely incredible people who I've known for a while, and they're incredible for joining us for this conversation. And I just want to say that as public defenders, we're sort of institutionally and individually situated in opposition to cops and prosecutors. We want our conversation on this episode to be informative and illuminating, and we take a risk that anything we ever say publicly about our work will get turned around and used by cops and prosecutors as criticism against the offices that we work for, the people we work with. And the biggest risk of all, the biggest fear of all, is that it would damage our work for our clients. So we'll talk about this a little more later, but our job as public defenders is first and foremost to advocate for our clients and so just wanted to explain a little bit about our need for anonymity and comfort. And then why are we doing this episode? Why do a public defense episode other than me being a public defender and liking talking about this stuff? On a practical level, listeners contact me every day. I get so many questions on social media about being a public defender. How do you become a public defender? What should I know about interviewing at a public defender office? What is it like day to day to be a PD? And most of all, I think the most frequent or common question I get is how do you balance being a public defender with your own mental health needs? So I wanted to have an episode that addressed what listeners seem to have lots of questions about. But also, selfishly, I really, really genuinely love talking about the work of being a public defender, you know, what it means, why it's important. And I think there aren't a lot of accurate representations of any of that in popular culture or to me, even like among attorneys, like broadly among the profession. I don't think other lawyers really know what it means to be a public defender. And so I wanted to use the platform to just highlight what I think is righteous work, but really bring true experts and role models in the career and get their perspectives on on what brings them to the work, hear about their diverse experiences, you know, practicing in a rural jurisdiction versus urban, state and federal, all of that. So I'm just really excited and wanted to explain a little bit about why we're even doing this. All right. So first, this is a broad question, but I think it's important. So I'm going to ask each of you, and we'll we'll start with Josh. Why did you become a public defender? I knew I wanted to be a public defender before I went to law school. So talked about not giving away personal information, but anyway, I grew I, did, I grew up in Chicago. I went to Chicago public schools, and a lot of people that I know, friends and family members, were involved in the criminal legal system and had their lives affected for the worse as a result. And I had a good family friend who was a public defender. And I didn't even know like what a public defender was or did. And I knew this person really well. And then one day they explained it. And I was like, oh, that's a thing. Yeah, that's it. Trying to stop this from happening. That, that sounds really cool. So it was really kind of a, a very personal reason as opposed to academic, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Katie? Yeah, um, a little bit of the same. Uh, You know, I wrote my law school essay about being a public defender, but I wasn't totally sure. I knew I wanted to do some form of low income legal services, kind of pulling people out of the systems that fail them. But I had some personal experience with my family in the criminal legal system, and I saw all the ways that their privilege benefited them, but also that the criminal legal system completely failed them. And so after my first year of law school, I was going to speak at a sentencing for a family member. 
And uh, that person's lawyer came up to me beforehand and was like, I know you're in law school, but don't go in there being a lawyer. And I just knew that that lawyer had never had an experience with anyone facing jail or prison, because if they did, there's no way that that's what their advice to me would have been. Right. Like like this person's life is about to change forever. And the lawyer has no idea what that's like. All he can think about is your work as a lawyer. He can't relate to this at all on a personal level. And so for me, that just solidified that we need people that have seen it and understand it from all different perspectives to be in the work. And and so I was definitely laser pointed on that for the rest of my law school experience. And Rhiannon, what about you? <laughs> and try not to get preachy. <laughs> I went to law school knowing that I wanted to do public interest work. I thought maybe I wanted to be an immigration attorney. I had grown up in a Palestinian family thinking that I wanted to work with refugees and maybe in sort of like international courts, the United Nations, whatever. But I went to law school and my first semester, I went to a panel of alumni who were there who were talking about being a public defender. And it clicked for me like in that moment. It was three people talking about what they did every day, talking about why they went to work, talking about representing clients in the system. And it felt immediately like it was something that was really aligned with my skills, my politics. And it felt like it was connected to the liberation work that was meaningful to my family and my people and certainly like interconnected systems, right? Coming from a background of Palestinians who are criminally oppressed and legally oppressed in our homeland and, you know, just feeling like I was taking part in that work here in the U.S. And I actually said not to get preachy. <laughs> and no, here you go. I am loud and, and like to fuck shit up. So it just works. <laughs> there we go. All right. So, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer, but I have no direct exposure to this work. So I want to get a sense of the actual job. So this question is for anyone willing to answer it. And I realize there's going to be different answers depending on where you are. But what is the first week on the job look like as a public <laughs> defender. First day to me is not enough information, but I would I would love to know like first week or, or so. So this is crazy because it really does vary a lot. It depends on what city you're in, what state you're in, whether it is a state criminal practice or federal criminal practice. It depends a lot office to office. You might have a ton of training up front and then you like kind of gradually ramp up in terms of your caseload. That was not my experience. My experience, I started my career in a rural jurisdiction in the borderlands on the border with Mexico and in far south Texas. And my first week on the job, was here are probably 75 cases total, misdemeanors and felonies. And here you go. Get started. Did that happen to you guys? Or uh, you guys? That did not happen to me. <laughs> so I was really lucky to be in a place where we had a, you know, a few weeks of training and then kind of got a handful of cases and then ramped up our practice, mostly through picking up new cases through people that got arrested. But I do still think the first week, kind of no matter what, is like, getting a lesson and strapping on a fire extinguisher and getting ready to put out whatever fires are coming up. Like, it's For sure. just no day is the same and nobody's first week as a public defender is the same. I think I started at one of the more bougie public defender office experiences. Tell us about that. That sounds good. <laughs> There's like two to three months of training before we took cases. What? 
Um, oh, shit. Losers. <laughs> yeah, started before we knew that we passed the bar, so we couldn't even legally take cases. So, yeah, for me, my biggest memories of it were, like, I started with a group of, like, nine or ten other people who had, many of us had moved from, like, all over the country, like, diverse bunch of people. And I was like, oh, shit, these are my people. Yeah, yeah. Not feeling like I was, like, raging against the other law students in my law school or whatever, like, and starting to, like, find some camaraderie. Right. Yeah, that is a unique experience, I think, of being at a public defender office is you do feel, like, all of the sudden, you're like, holy shit, here are... 10 other people who think like I do or substantially similar, right, mm-hmm. have a certain specific philosophy about what the fuck is going on in our system right now. And it's a huge relief. Right. So I'd like I want to understand the job on the ground. So I, I realize the job has a lot of components. You're handling cases front to back. And so, you know, this might not be easy to answer, but what would you say are the four to five tasks that you find yourself doing most often? Mm. What constitutes the bulk of your time? If you can break it down into just a few things. Panic. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of them. Panic is number one every day. There's something else to panic about for sure. No, um, just thinking about the path of a case. So you are almost always arguing or asking for some form of pretrial relief or pretrial release, right? So getting clients out on bond is something that you are arguing for quite often, right? I do it almost every day in my practice, just asking a judge to release a client pretrial without my client having to pay anything to get out. And then visiting clients and talking with clients about how their case is proceeding and what they want to have happen on cases. That is a huge portion of the work is interacting directly with with the clients that you represent. So going to the jail, meeting with clients at the office, that kind of thing. Uh, I'd like to jump in with uh, sitting in court for hours and hours to appear <laughs> yeah. for 30 seconds and have nothing happen. And your client had to take off work and you had to sign up the case and you had to sit there and the judge asked for an update. Yep. The prosecutor asked for more time to respond to your motions. So there's a lot of time spent kind of, you know, sitting in court and preparing for these kind of minor appearances. And, you know, if you're lucky, you're asking for your client to be excused at future court dates so that you're the only one that has to waste the time there. But definitely, you know, sitting in court and preparing for even, you know, kind of the the less serious court dates. Yeah, definitely. I think the over-preparation stage where you're just like, you're suddenly in the situation where you're going to visit a client and they're like actually asking you for legal advice yeah. when it's like, <laughs> do I tell this person that I started working like two weeks ago that right, I've never right. tried a case before? So that results in, like I said, panic. And then I think like trying to see if you can figure everything out ahead of time. Right. All right. I want to talk about caseloads. So, A, what are your caseloads at any given time? How many cases are are you handling? And B, how many are actually active? Like, how many are you really juggling, let's say, on a given week? 
So right now I have about 50 cases. About half of them are felonies. That means the other half are misdemeanors. Those are all adult clients. I don't represent juveniles. I get new appointments every other week. And that means, you know, going back and and asking the judge to (laughs) release clients on bond and you start from square one with every new client. Right. Mm -hmm. When I was in that rural jurisdiction in South Texas, the most cases I had at one time was maybe about 120. So it varies a lot. I've also been in court and gotten new clients and that been like here are 40 new clients today. Mm -hmm. When I was a line public defender, I would have something like somewhere between three and 20 cases on any given day of the week. So in in a given week, I'm probably going to appear in court on at least 20 clients' cases. But then it's like, but then what's happening next week? And so thinking about like motions and discovery demands and things that need to happen for the next week. And then thinking about like two weeks out, well, you know, what's on for trial? Have I done my investigation So it's kind of like, yep, you've got your like court in the morning. You have to think through the the cases that are on today and and what negotiations have happened and what the directions are of those cases and those clients that you're going to see and have met with before then. And then it's trying to look forward. So trying to make sure that, yes, like when we say we have a caseload of 100 or 120, like those are all active cases. But thinking about what point in the activity they're at takes some kind of foresight for like, what's this week? What's three weeks out? Yeah, I started in the federal system. So it's a slightly different from a caseload perspective for a bunch of reasons. I think one is the federal system is better funded than most state systems. So the caseloads are just naturally lower because of that. But then also like there are federal misdemeanors, but almost all of your cases are felonies. So probably touch fewer cases, but same thing as as kind of like Katie was saying, where it's like you learn very quickly that your life will have some semblance of sanity if you like touch all of your cases more often. So right. because that prevents me from getting to a point on a case where it's like I have to spend the whole week on on a case and it totally ruins my life. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, we've touched on this a bit. One question we got was how different is the experience of being a public defender across the country? So state to state, city to city, urban, rural. Are there any differences in different parts of the country that people wouldn't expect, right? Obviously, things like culture and caseload are going to shift a bit, but Is there anything that is sort of surprising that jumps out to you? What I find so surprising is how similar all of these criminal court systems are and how they operate and how things get to the kind of lowest common denominator in terms of respect for clients, thinking outside the box, like just these entrenched beliefs that really are state by state that we're fighting against and yet have so many similarities. So I'm not sure that I can speak to unusual trends in public defense, but I think I find so surprising that everything is the same everywhere in terms of the the way this grinds on our clients. And that's disappointing and has to be fought against on every level. Yeah, that's a really good point. What is surprising is that because public defender systems are so siloed, either state to state or even like county to county, as it is in a lot of places like in the South and in Texas, for sure. What ends up being surprising is like what randomly a state, you know, that you wouldn't expect ends up funding public defense really well and having really good training programs and stuff. So I'm thinking of like, of course, 
as a public defender, you hear all the time that, you know, one of the strongest sort of criminal defense bars in the country is in D.C. at the public defender service there. You also hear great things about the public defender offices in New York City. But what was surprising to me in law school was to learn, like, the state of Colorado funds its public defender system really well. New public defenders get really good training there. And so I think that's something that is surprising is that sometimes just out of the blue, one location does do things really well. Meanwhile, uh, New York had to be sued to require lawyers at arraignments. <laughs> it's happened like six years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, along those lines, there's been much talk of progressive prosecutors these days. Rhiannon once spoke eloquently about this on our podcast, so I'm Just not going to allow her to respond. Um, so... <laughs> Katie and Josh, what, do you have do you have thoughts on progressive prosecutors? I'll start because I have some pros and cons. You know, I think in the short term, there are some kind of excellent, quick things that can be done by somebody who takes office. So I do not want to say that there is not an impact. So not prosecuting drug crimes, agreeing to personal bonds, limiting probation terms, agreeing to shorten sentences, agreeing to early termination of probation you know, expanding how people get to dismissals. Like, I think there are quick things that some progressive prosecutors have tried to implement. I think in the long term, the answer is no, because they're still operating in the carceral framework. So as long as you're operating in a place where prison is at the other end of it, you can only be so progressive. And, and I think part of that is thinking about you know, progressive prosecutors oftentimes will like draw the line on violent crimes versus non-violent crimes. And so many things that are designated as violent crimes actually don't really involve violence. And so, you know, I, I think in terms if you're still in that dichotomy in that carceral framework, it's hard for that to have kind of a long term positive impact. Yeah, I mean, Great things can happen if somebody with better values gets into some of these positions. But then I feel like it also runs the same risk of like giving legitimacy to the position in general, like the idea that there needs to be a prosecutor, that there needs to be like this body that is set up solely for the purpose of like exacting punishment for perceived wrongs. I think it can lead to some real good short-term gains, but I think it could lead to the same thing that like people come out be like, oh, well, I'm going to go work for this prosecutor. And since now they're only prosecuting like violent criminals, now it's better. We can return to like the way that it's supposed to be with us being the side of good and the defense being the side of bad. And yes. we find out if this person's really an evil person, right. you know, to the extent that it reinforces that system, it could be problematic. But for, for now, like, Shit, I'll take it. Mm -hmm. I'll vote for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You're dismissing my client's marijuana charge. Thank you so much. You're sending other people to prison. You're a fucking idiot. So let's talk about how to prepare for and get better at being a public defender. Because we got a lot of questions that were along the lines of, I want to be a public defender. What do I do? Are there internships you recommend? Are there clinics you recommend? Obviously, a, a criminal defense clinic seems... Yeah, I, I vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to add that people asked specifically about getting experience or an internship at a prosecutor's office before mm -hmm. 
applying to be a public defender or as, you know, whether or not that's valuable to do a, a prosecutor clinic or to go on police ride-alongs. Somebody said they were encouraged as a law student to do. Do you guys think that police ride-alongs should be required to graduate <laughs> from law school? I mean, if you're going to mock the police, then I say go for it. But Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I think I, I do like to take this moment to say, like, I think people should intern in a public defender's office and find out if they think that's a good fit for them. Um, yeah. If standing up in court is something that works for them and it, and it shouldn't work the first time, you can be scared shitless that first time and many times after that. But just figuring out if like trial level public defense is what you want to do, I think. Yeah. Um, Doing a criminal defense clinic and, and interning at a public defender's office is going to give you a, a good window into that because there's lots of other ways to be a public defender. There's appellate work. There's post-conviction work. There's mitigation work. There's lots of ways to be a public defender. So I do think trying to get your feet in the in the water to figure out if if trial work is what you want to do. And I think clinics are a good way of doing that. And I think internships where you might get the opportunity to talk in court can be helpful in that. Could you define mitigation work for our stupid listeners and also me? <laughs> sure. And I'd love for Rhiannon to chime in on that. But mitigation work is being a part of a legal team and developing kind of the psychosocial history and tracking a client's life path that led them to the criminal legal system in some way. So it's primarily been really focused on in the the world of death penalty work of trying to get to a non-death sentence. But it has, in the last couple of decades, really expanded into everyday defense work. For people with JDs and non-JDs can be really meaningful work in this public defense realm. This is presuming if you know you want to be a public defender and you're asking what is the best things that you can do to do that as somebody who has done quite a bit of hiring of public defenders in my career, I won't throw out an application that has prosecutor experience on it, but it puts a red flag for me. I know I was told that I should go do that and work at a prosecutor's office, but I think that the nature of the work, given where this country is at right now, is such that if you're comfortable putting people in jail, then I think you want to really question whether being a public defender is is really what you want to do. So I would suggest against it unless you're considering that as a line of work. And to chime in, I think one of the reasons that people give is to, like, see the other side. Yeah, it's super common, I feel, in other areas of the law. Like, it's super common that, like, you know, having worked, quote unquote, for the other side or having experience on the other side makes you a better advocate on, you know, on the new side that you're applying for or whatever. But um, I mean, do you do you think that's not true? It feels to me like it has to be true. No, I think it's not true because the other side, the prosecutorial side is the culture story of America. We already right. know what the prosecutors think because that is what tough on crime rhetoric has been forever. So if you want to guess at what their perspective is, like just turn on law and order and you don't need to go work <laughs> in that office. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, we, we know what prosecutors think. We know what prosecutors do because the output of their work is the oppression of our clients. Right. So I don't need to go work in the prosecutor's office, put people away and argue for, you know, higher cash bail or more harsh sentences, because I already know what that looks like by talking to and defending my clients who are already experts on that system. Right. I mean, to the extent that there are like For example, grand jury proceedings are secret in most jurisdictions. And if you're a prosecutor, you will get to go sit in there with the grand jury and talk to them about whether they should charge people with crimes. So there are things, I guess, that you could experience that you will not experience. But I think that you can learn everything that you need to know about those things by advocating for your clients. And a huge part of like being a good public defender in my mind is like you look at the situation, you're like, something is wrong here. And then you research and you work to figure out like, what is it that's wrong? And how could I possibly bring that up as an issue in this client's case? And having that solely public defender perspective, I think gives you an edge as opposed to if you spent time in a district attorney's office, you think like, oh, that's how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to chat it up with the grand jurors in the grand jury room. Whereas a public defender might look at that and be like, why are you saying anything to the grand jurors? Aren't they supposed to be independent people mm-hmm. who right. are making a determination about charging people? So I think, you know, it is an area where having some purity in terms of your perspective is helpful to task at hand. So skills that you feel like you need the most as a public defender. And I will add a side question in here. Are there any skills that you think are overrated for public defenders? So something that was said in that panel that I went to as a first semester 1L by one of the panelists about why she does public defense work, I remember to this day her saying that she thought that she was coming to the work sort of from a place of hostility, of hate, hating what the police do to our clients, hating what the system does to clients every single day. And then she realized really quickly that that's not sustainable and that you have to do the work from a place of love. And that you genuinely love your clients and you love your community and that's what you're fighting for. And so I think the skills that make the best public defenders that I've ever worked with or or seen in a courtroom are really sort of about those approaches and motivations for the work, right? That you come to the work from a place of love, feeling like it's the great honor of my life to to stand next to my clients and to fight for them in a courtroom. What about the podcast? That's that's that is honor number two, Peter. Um, one one A and one B. <laughs> and so I think that kind of approach or sort of internal motivation is something that's so so important. That's that's less of a kind of hard, concrete, tangible skill, right? The rest of it is is learnable, acquirable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, one one skill I think that is really helpful, and then I will give an overrated is being able to put yourself in other people's shoes. And that is, you know, trying to develop compassion and empathy to sit with your clients, but also to get into the heads of your adversary, to get into the heads of the prosecutor and the judge and to identify their concerns and be able to not just say, you're an asshole or you're never going to do this, but to say, like, how am I going to convince you or make you feel comfortable doing the thing that I need you to do for my client and their expressed interest. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, for me, that's like one of my favorite parts is trying to just get in their heads and and figure that out. Mm -hmm. 
And then I think the thing that I would say is overrated is feeling totally confident and able to talk off the cuff because so much of being a public defender is preparation and everything you see that is good in court is something that somebody prepared and not something that they came up with off the top of their head. And so I think a lot of folks are really nervous in the courtroom. And that's okay. Like that shows that you care and that shows that you care to the judge. It shows that you care to a jury. You know, I've had people and and even myself, I've acknowledged like, wow, this is really serious and I am a little bit nervous. So I think folks that have some trepidation about public speaking, I think that is stuff that you can work to feel comfortable with. And so I would say that's an overrated characteristic. I would agree with Katie. I think that If you give me a month, I could get pretty much anybody to feel relatively confident, like off the cuff and sound the way that people think lawyers sound. Mm -hmm. It's not like a talent you can't win. Yeah, that was one of the questions was, you know, how do you deal with performance anxiety in court? And have you had any experience dealing with nerves in court? And is it a skill that can be attained? Uh, This is like the only question that we were sent that I have any experience with, but absolutely can be learned. Oh, yeah. The first time I spoke in court, I was like super well rehearsed. I said everything I need to say. Didn't sound super nervous, but I was so jacked with adrenaline that my leg was doing the most unnatural shake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> as if I was lifting it off the ground and slamming it back like a couple inches yeah. and slamming it back down. Like really bizarre, but it was all beneath the table or like behind a bench or some shit. But by the third or fourth time I was in court, it was fine. Totally. Of course, it's a learned skill. It's public speaking. You get used to it. Yeah. I think, you know, something about public defense work that you learn early on, it is incredibly high stakes, but rarely actually are you in the one moment where your presentation of something is going to be like fucked up and that fucks up the case forever. Right. And the situations where it is incredibly high stakes and you do just have the one shot, you're going to have time to prep it and you will have been well prepared for that moment. Right. But your sort of off the cuff or in the moment decision about a certain way to approach a case or approach a conversation like just with a prosecutor in a kind of daily interaction, you will often be able to kind of write the course if, if you feel like you fucked up. Right. Okay, which is more beneficial to clients, having adversarial relationships with ADAs or having more cooperative relationships with ADAs? Okay. It's about to get real. (laughs) We are all smiling. Um, um, Situational? (laughs) So I will start. I'll say ADAs, the acronym means assistant district attorney. So this person who asked the question is referring to like, you know, line prosecutors. Is it better for your clients to have an adversarial kind of hostile relationship with those people, with those prosecutors who are handling your your cases? Or is it better to get along with them and have smooth interpersonal relations with them? I think that it's case by case and it's also prosecutor to prosecutor, right? My approach, of course, is always what is going to be the route that gets me what my client wants, right? So with an individual prosecutor, if that means that I'm being super nice and charming and we're talking about what we did over the weekend and all of that stuff, then yeah, I'm willing to do it. I will say, though, that I feel that a culture across a defense bar or across a public defender office of 
we're nice to prosecutors and we do things in a nice way and we're always polite to each other. And at the end of the day, yeah, we are in opposition to one another on our cases. But at the end of the day, we're friends and we'll go to happy hour on Fridays. I don't see how long term and big picture that ever actually works to benefit clients. I think that that's an attorney focused practice and not a client centered practice. And I think you would be hard pressed to find a jurisdiction where that works to benefit clients by and large. Josh, I'm sure you want to jump in. I'm also sure. Sure. Josh, it's time for you to get real. I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is like, be yourself if you because of your belief system, do not want to be friendly with prosecutors. You don't need to be friendly with prosecutors to be good at this job. That's right. I know some incredibly effective public defenders who are wildly abrasive people, um, but they're really, really good at their job and their clients get benefits because people don't want to deal with it. And they know that they're not going to give up. And I had no other really good public defenders who are like, kind of syrupy sweet in a way that is a little distasteful to me, but that get results. I think the thing to keep in mind is like, where is it coming from? Like, are you doing it for the purpose of obtaining a benefit for your client? I know somebody once, I don't even remember where I heard this. They were like in a courtroom, lots of defense attorneys were schmoozing it up with the prosecutors and they were like proudly sitting by their client, like not participating. And their client was like, Dude, what the hell are you doing? Like, go, go try to get me a deal. Right, right. Get in there, bro. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't know that we need to presume that the, the client is going to not want you to talk to the prosecutor, but they're going to want you to do it for the right reason. Yeah. And I just, I mean, like, I think there's a difference between being professional and polite and really kind of having to schmooze a whole lot. Like, I'm willing to tell someone I like their tie if that's true to me. But I, you know, I think one rule of thumb I always have is thinking like every conversation I have with a prosecutor, I picture my client standing right there next to me, encountering it and feeling whatever they would feel about it. And and that drives kind of what, you know, the ways that I talk about all kinds of things. But I think it for me is a guiding principle Mm -hmm. of like, how close am I going to be with a prosecutor and how much am I going to engage in that small talk in in the courtroom? I'll definitely lie about liking a tie for a misdemeanor. I'm just going to say. Oh, for Yeah. Do you ever go the other direction and try nagging the prosecutors? Does that work? You know, I think depending on who you are, it does. It depends on your personality and the prosecutor's personality for sure. But I think all manner of approaches can be effective for sure. I have negged the fuck out of many a line prosecutor. (laughs) We get a lot of these questions in the public defender context and otherwise. And a lot of it makes me think that people think that there's like a really cookie cutter way to be a good lawyer. And I think the actual answer in my experience in civil work is like, you know, like, what are you good at? Right. What dynamics are you are you comfortable with? And, you know, what are your strengths? You can play to those. And what's interesting about the public defense context is the stakes feel so high that I think a lot of people feel like if they fuck up by using the wrong approach, they have done a terrible injustice. Yes. Agree. Yeah. That takes us into, I think, uh, there are a couple of questions we got about sort of the public defender mind space. I thought this was a sharp question. How do you deal with the inherent tension between fighting against the system and being a cog within it, so to speak? Yeah. And take that in whatever way you feel. There is an overall, like at the end of the week, I might feel like, 
wow, I really had to slog through this. And I really felt like I was just participating in a process that I don't really believe in. But then there's those small victories of like, and it's not a small, it's a huge victory. I got somebody out of jail today. And I did that because I am a part of this shitty system, but I got to know this client and I got to advocate to the judge and they are going home to their family tonight. So I think really like taking the moments to feel humanity with clients and hear them and operate in their expressed interests, even though there's a bunch of often crappy options in front of them. But there are huge and small victories that make people feel human in a system that is 100% geared to dehumanize them. I think it's important just to remember, like, at all times, we are kind of a cog in the machine, right? There's a ton of parts of the criminal legal system that, like, public defenders kind of make work. Like, they allow the prosecutors and the judges not to have to really interact with the people whose lives they're harming, right? They get to interact with this more palatable version of their interests through us. And I would do sometimes think about like, well, what if they just all shut down? Everybody went pro se. These people would lose their minds. And just to interject, pro se, meaning like the defendants would represent themselves in court. So you wouldn't have a public defender serving as a buffer. Keeping that in mind will make you not go along to get along kind of in the system. And remember, you know, like I try to remind people, like even in cases where I can't get any incremental benefit from my client. And there are cases like that where just like, I'm like, this person could have been served just as well by a cardboard box as they were by me in this case. Yeah. You know, I can still extract a cost for the legal system, like harming my client by wasting their time and money. If if what they want to do is put humans in cages, I can waste as much time as humanly possible. So I think it does suck. And it's like a tension that you're going to have in your career if that's your value system, but that you can use it as like a motivation to make sure that you're not just being a cog in the machine. Yeah, really good point. I think I've probably talked on the podcast before about how in our area of work, you are having to redefine victory a lot. You're having to redefine what a win is because being a public defender and being a cog in the system, if you want to define it like that, is about losing a lot of the time, right? When when somebody is arrested, when somebody is taken from their community and they're kept in jail because they can't afford to pay to get out, like that's a loss. That's a community loss. That's a family loss. And so from the beginning, you're already dealing, I think, in tragedy. And I think sometimes that really, really bogs you down. But to Katie's point that you start to celebrate the humanity of your work and the little wins, right? Getting somebody out of jail is a huge win, even though it was just a part of the of the machine working that day, right? Sometimes counseling somebody on whether to take a deal to go to prison for 10 years, right? Those are incredibly human moments that are unique to this work and you start to celebrate some complicated things. So I want to move on to uh, what I consider to be the public defender question because this is the one we get all the fucking time, which is how do you deal emotionally, morally, whatever, with representing guilty clients? And I want to frame this up because I think the sort of Obviously, this question is directed at people doing criminal defense work disproportionately, let's say, relative to people in other areas of law, like, I don't know, securities litigation or some shit like that, right? But let's put that aspect aside and just in a vacuum, 
how do you deal with representing someone who is guilty and let's say in situations where the crime is particularly heinous? Right. And again, you can take this in different ways, whether it's about how you cope with it from a moral perspective, intellectual perspective, or how you just deal with it in your practice. I don't know. I mean, I think I don't really generally have a problem with it. I've had some cases where I've you know, I like to not think of it as like whether they're guilty, but I have clients where I believe they did something that's bad. It's difficult for me to get my mind around, but like, that's the work, that's the job. And I, that part's easy for me. Like I go in, I encounter somebody, whatever happened already happened. And I'm having my interaction with them. The harder parts for me to deal with are like the, the harms that I, I don't choose how I interact with it. Like I choose how I interact with my clients. I choose when I review discovery of like a heinous murder or something like that. And I, you know, get to take the time that I need to process it or to get time away from it. But I do not get that in time when like when the harm happens to my client, like on my watch as part of the system, like somebody gets sent to jail for 20 years. That's right. And there's nothing I can do about it. it happens there. And everybody else in the courtroom seems to think that it's fine. And it's what was supposed to happen. Like those are the, the things that are harder for me to deal with as far as like, I don't want to see something happen that I think is immoral, but in the you know, definitionally, as a public defender, you're coming in after the fact to try to sort out what happens next. And I just think like, you know, it's been so rare that I've encountered a client who I think is actually like going to perpetrate future bad things. I do believe in bad people. I just usually they're not my clients. That's right. Yes. <laughs> There's this sense of it, like you go in and you meet somebody. And it's like, oh, my God, they did this thing. And when you meet that person you're like oh it's a it's a person yes right and then you learn about the things later Mm -hmm. yeah just to chime in on that i think you know maybe i'm like the rarest of public defenders but i don't think i am i found a way to connect with all my clients and that does not mean that we get along always it's not does not mean that we all like each other at all times but at the risk of sounding cheesy it's like people that commit violence or harm towards another person have been harmed and part of developing the relationship is is learning about that harm and figuring out how we got to this position and so you know for me again I don't want to say I've had perfect relationships with clients I've been yelled at and stuff but you know I I've found that kind of understanding to how this person got to me, despite the fact that maybe they, they've actually hurt or harmed another person. Yeah, I think that you learn pretty quickly or start to be familiar with the feeling early on in a public defense career that when you are meeting a new client, you are often meeting them on one of the worst days of their life. Right. Literally one of the worst days of their life when sort of an active crisis is happening in their lives and in the lives of people they know and love. Right. And so being a public defender is less to me about defending a guilty person and more about humanizing an individual who has become a scapegoat in the system. For violence, right? And understanding how even interpersonal violence, right, happens in the lives of everyday people and that they're still human beings deserving of zealous advocacy and a public defender who's going to fight for them. When I was in federal practice, there's a lot of litigation legally about like what constitutes a crime of violence. Yes. And it actually kind of led me to this thought that's like, we don't actually have 
a good definition. There's no real good way to distinguish between what is a crime of violence and what is a crime that just harms somebody. Or a crime and a non-crime. Right. So many of my clients, short of my clients who are charged with murder, like I would say universally, whatever sentence my client ends up getting, they would probably be willing to be subject to whatever the violence was that they are alleged to have inflicted, then serve whatever sentence that they that they got. Yes. So like what is really the greater harm in that context and what is violent? You know, it's it, we're really talking about like what's wrong or what is like immoral or bad, which is, you know, a judgment. I think that's right. And just one more thing I'll say is that I think what the criminal punishment system does is uh, and we've said it like almost in every answer, right, is dehumanize the people that are that are swept up into it. And of course, it is fundamentally about dehumanizing people and also making people responsible for violence and making them mm-hmm. pay, making them be punished for violence. Right. But I think one of the sort of more nefarious, uh, like psychological effects of a criminal punishment system that works like this is that it separates people from exactly what Josh is talking about. Like it, it separates you and abstracts the violence that is normalized every single day, violence that is done by the state, right? Economic violence, racial violence, and otherwise that we don't address because we treat violence the way we do in the punishment system. And then the other thing I'll say is that if you're talking about, okay, like I represent a lot of people on assault family violence, domestic violence charges. That's just part of it. I represent people every day accused of domestic violence. And when you're talking about people who have lived with interpersonal violence and domestic violence and stuff, you're talking about my family, right? You're talking about most people's families. And so when you're talking about representing people in the criminal punishment system who are accused of harming others, really it's about this targeted and usually racist enforcement of these laws, right? So we care for criminal punishment purposes about domestic violence, but really only for poor people, people of color, right? This kind of interpersonal violence is happening across society, and it's only certain people who are sort of stigmatized as being prone to this kind of violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to chime in on one other thing that pisses me off, when I have clients that are charged with sex offenses, which is like the worst of the worst. Every time, almost always, probably every time, they were exposed to some kind of sexual trauma or violence as a child. Absolutely. And when we're in court, you know, there's children's advocates sitting in the audience and there's people that are are there to advocate for the harshest penalties. And they're there on behalf of Sam. And then Sam turns 17 and perpetrates some kind of what we've designated as sexual violence. And it's like, throw him away, charge him as an adult, put him in prison. It's like, you just you just got to cross an age threshold and we're willing to just totally flip the switch. And so that to me is the struggle with what we define as violence and what we define as trauma and where those lines are and and where once you've crossed them, there's no coming back and there's no hope for anybody. Mm hmm. I want to drill down on that last point just a little bit. How do you cope with situations where you're adverse to victims, right? So you might be put into a situation where you're obligated to question a an alleged victim's honesty or or whatever it might be, something where where you are really ethically obligated as someone representing your client to put an alleged victim in a circumstance that might be traumatic to them. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, those situations 
I have chosen right to be a part of this system. And there are so many rules and procedures that are set up that inflict trauma on my my clients, on defendants in the system. And the fact that there are some that are designed to enable that person to defend themselves that also could potentially inflict harm or trauma on others, to me, is like a natural balance in the system. That's not to say like, I love it. Right. Because <laughs> very frequently, like if you're a public defender for more than five minutes, you're going to have people who are on both sides of criminal activity. One day they're going to be your client and the next they're going to be the complaining witness in the case. That's right. So you're not going to feel good about certain interactions, but it's just like, there's more than enough like traumatic shit going around that I'm not going to choose to draw the line at the place where it harms my client in the system. Yeah. You know, I don't need to belabor it, but it's like, again, you know, the system has forced us to be on one side or the other, and there's no conversation of reconciliation of acknowledgement. And so like given the system that we are working in and the harm that is so prevalent for a client who gets convicted of a crime, like I'm not into anybody getting traumatized, but being accountable and having to answer questions on the stand is, is a part of the system that we currently work in. And, you know, I try not to do it like viciously. I try to be, you know, a compassionate listener. But at the end of the day, the harm that is going to happen to my client is outweighed by a person that has to come in and talk about it. And so I I take that part of my job really seriously. Yeah, I'll just say, you know, something Katie mentioned a long time ago that has stuck with me, actually. One time Katie was talking about like dealing with a client's family members and like what family wants to happen in a case. And then you have a complaining witness, a victim, what they want to have happen in a case. And, you know, maybe their family, maybe there are other parties involved who have interests in the outcome of the case. And Katie, one time the way you put it was like, as a public defender, you are the only person whose job it is to fight for that person in the system, the person accused, right? The criminal defendant, your client. Victims advocates at DA's offices have whole divisions that are for victim services, placing the the blame for re-traumatizing on a defense attorney. It's just misplaced given the constraints of the system that we work in and also what our job is, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You are the only person whose job it is to advocate for that individual client. And at the end of the day, sometimes that's just the job. And that's what I came to work to do today. Yeah. All right. So before we wrap, maybe some big picture borderline policy stuff. If you could see some basic reforms of our public defense system beyond the obvious, which is, you know, fund more, anything in particular that you would advocate for? Funding, for sure. I mean, I know you said (laughs) I know you said beyond funding, but I think the sort of quintessential issue, the quintessential inequity and injustice in terms of adequate and zealous defense representation in our system that protects the constitutional rights of people in the punishment system is the main problem is that you have underfunded and under-resourced attorneys and offices who are supposed to be defending and advocating for people against whom the prosecutor's office, the police department, the all of the resources of the state are are targeted against. Right. So it is sort of the primary issue, I think. 
it's a little connected to that, I guess. But ultimately, it's like the huge problem, I think, in public defense and criminal legal system generally right now is just like this insane drive towards efficiency, like that they want to squeeze every yeah. drop of like, quote unquote, justice out of the money that they're putting into the system. And I think that's why, like, everything's a plea. Everything's like decided before you even go to court to make sure that you spend the least amount of time on the record. Right. Any policy changes that can make rights kind of matter again, you know, make people have to actually engage with what they're doing, I think can be there. And then you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say like, yeah, we should get rid of all the peremptories for real, for real. Oh, yes. yes. Let's pretend someone didn't know what that meant. <laughs> That's a really good. And didn't it happen in Arizona? What's happening with that? Yeah. Yeah. You should explain, Josh. <laughs> it did just happen in Arizona. So I'm excited to see. Um, But yeah. So when you have a jury trial, you get a whole bunch of people supposedly from the community. But that, that's another area that's right for some reform. But you have to select 12 <laughs> people out of their group. And for a long time, it's just been standard practice that both sides get to strike people without really giving a reason. You know, it's not supposed to be able to be based on race, but there's a million proxies for it. And we've just presumed that it's part of the system, but it's not constitutional. It's not like we don't have to do it. And for a long time, every trial I've ever had, I would have been better off if I just took the first 12 in the box than going through the jury selection process. Yeah. So I think that is a significant reform that could be made that would be easy, that would make things fair. And if you combined it with actually having representative jury pools, you might start seeing a tiny bit of justice happen. Yes. One of the things that I see all the time with my clients is that they are interacting with all kinds of legal systems beyond the criminal legal system and don't have a right to counsel in almost any of those other places. So I think that if we truly, I mean, one, we should decriminalize and legalize lots of things that we currently criminalize and and use as proxies for surveillance in our communities. So certainly that, getting rid of police unions, and then also kind of building building a more robust, if we're going to continue to have the legal profession, which we shouldn't, but we've really built it up such that we perpetuate this thing and make ourselves very important as lawyers. If we're going to do that, we need to help people in the other systems that they're navigating while intersecting with the the criminal legal system. But, yeah, you know, there's some movement towards that in some defender offices. And and I think being able to, to assist in those other areas really impacts the, the criminal matter and whether or not someone stays in their community or not. Yeah. Being a public defender is really about the practice of poverty law. And most of the clients that you get are also facing legal consequences, detrimental, horrific, tragic legal consequences in other areas of the law at the same time simultaneously, right? So they're facing eviction and need housing defense. They need family defense. They need employment advocates, right? Public benefits, all kinds of stuff, disability rights. It's sort of multi-layered and obviously intersectional for every client. And so to the extent that public defender offices can be kind of like a, a home base or a starting point for connecting clients with the whole gamut of legal representation that they need, that's a really good step in the right direction. I think that's enough. That was part one of seven. So you want to be a public (laughs) defender. There's so much more to talk about. Katie and Josh, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I love you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. 
Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Thanks for supporting the Patreon. We'll see you soon. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations.